0: The scripture reading for this evening comes from Psalm 95. This is God's Word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God. He is a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: We had Alton Hardy here last week, who is a pastor at a sister congregation across town. And um, he uh, was uh, filling in for us, but also bringing us... Um, the good news of the gospel to help us to remember the poor. And uh, hopefully some of you got to see um, the weekly recap I send out with some articles and information for him. But if you have other questions about that, let me know. I'd be happy to put you in touch with Alton. But as we come tonight, uh, we're going to take the next four weeks and we're going to take time to renew our vision and values as a church uh, here at Red Mountain. And to do that, we're going to We're going to look at four words that, uh, for us at Red Mountain, they give expression to key biblical themes that matter a great deal to us as a church of Jesus Christ. And those four words are worship, grace, community, and place. And you can see a little bit more written about those in the back of your worship folder if you're interested. But we're going to begin tonight with worship, and we're going to begin Uh, this brief series on our vision and renewing that vision by looking at Psalm 95. And Psalm 95, uh, throughout the history of the church, has played a pivotal role in forming and crafting and directing the worship of the church. It's full of uh, direction and help for how is it that we worship? What is it? How do you do it? And even if you look at Just as a cursory read, you get a sense of the basic rhythm of worship. If you look in the opening verses, they're full of praise and joy and singing and delight. And then when you come to verse 6, it shifts to humility, humble submission, bowing before God. And then in verse 7, it shifts again to listening to God's word hearing what he has to say. And if you ever wondered that actually gives shape to what we do here. There's praise, there's song, there's confession, there's humbling yourself before God and there's then listening to God and what he has to say. And so the basic rhythm of this worship that we see in this psalm it begins with seeing God's greatness and his beauty, and his power, which leads to seeing how small and dependent we are, which leads to our need for God's word of grace. That's the basic rhythm. And therefore, what I want to do this evening is I want to look at this passage to see what it has to teach us about worship. And we're going to see what, what worship is, what worship requires, and then we'll finish with what worship Promises. So first, let's look at what worship is. If I could try to give you a definition of what we mean when we talk about Christian worship, what the Bible means by Christian worship. Here is a definition that I think does a great job. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to something in such a way that it engages your whole being. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth, ultimate value to something in such a way that it engages your whole being. It engages your emotions. It engages your will. It engages your mind. That's what worship is. In fact, we see this definition reflected in the very next psalm, in verse 8, when the psalmist writes, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And so what does it mean? to ascribe ultimate value or worth to something. We're, we're shown what that means in verses 3 to 5 here, also in verse 7. If you look in verse 3, 4, and 5, and verse 7, the the, the psalmist here is, he's reflecting on his God. He's pondering who he is. He's meditating on what he knows, and he's beginning to see all of these things about his God that he now treasures. Notice how this works. In verse 3, there is a little preposition there, four. What are the triggers for all this joy and song and singing? What's the trigger for this humility and this bowing before God? Well, in verse 3 through 5, he tells us that God is the great king, that he's beyond compare that he is the creator and the sustainer and the ruler over all that there is that he holds the creation in his very hands and that he made all of it from the height to the depths from the east and to the west it's all his but then also he's working out what does it mean to ascribe glory to this, this God that I know he discovers that this God is his maker that this God is committed to him. He's our God. He's faithful. He's the shepherd God. He's the one who tends and cares for his people. He's all sufficient. He gets personally involved. All of the, that imagery of the shepherd certainly echoes Psalm 23. You see, that's what it means to ascribe ultimate worth to something is that you begin to think about it and meditate on it and dig deep into it to the point where you can't help but begin to express what it means to you. Not only does this help us to know how to ascribe value and worth in worship, but it also helps you to pinpoint what you worship. Remember I said that Worship is not only ascribing ultimate value, but it's doing so in such a way that it engages all of who you are. So, look at how this works. Here we see in verses 1 and 2 how worship engages the emotions in the singing, in joyful song, in songs of praise and thanksgiving. And then notice in verse 6, come, let us bow and worship. Here, the psalmist is showing us that worship engages the will. It begins to shape your life, how you act, the choices you make. And then in verse 7, when he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, it engages the mind. That when we hear God's word, God is speaking to us. And in fact, He's getting us to think His thoughts after Him. He's explaining who we are. He's explaining why things are the way they are. He's helping us to see what He's done about that and what hope we can have in light of His great work. So there's songs of joy, the emotions. There's submission to God, it's the will. And then there's listening. Engaging the mind. All of those things are present in the psalm. And therefore, worship is not just a religious thing. This is a human thing. Uh, everybody does this. Everybody ascribes ultimate value to something that engages you at the core of who you are. Your emotions and your will and your mind. Think of it like this. And you could reflect on this from the first and second commandment. Those two commandments assume everybody is a worshiper. To be a human being means you are created. You can't but give your loyalty and your devotion to something. What might that sound like? Well, what, is, what you worship is what you celebrate. It's what you rejoice in. It's what you sing about. It's what you want to tell other people about. Maybe an example of that might be what what do you celebrate in your life? What do you rejoice in? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your performance. Not only is worship what you celebrate, but worship, what you worship is what you submit to, it's what you serve. It's the reason that you will say no to any number of other things, even at great cost to you, in order to get what you ascribe ultimate value to. And what you worship is what you listen to most. It's what you listen to to make sense out of yourself and your place in the world. It's what gives you a sense of purpose and meaning. And therefore what we worship it has absolute power over your life. And what this psalm teaches you essentially is this that you will either be enslaved to something that's created or you will be enslaved to God. There are only two options. Either God will have ultimate sway and power in your life or something else will. And perhaps you might be thinking, I just don't think that's true and I just beg to differ with you. You simply cannot be a human being and not worship. And as the psalmist is saying, unless you build your life on God, unless he becomes the ultimate treasure in your life, you'll never be free. You'll you'll never be content. You'll never find rest. Because the reason is, no created thing was ever intended to bear the weight of your trust. It can't bear the weight of your trust. It can't bear the weight of your fears. It can't bear the weight of your hopes. Only God can do that. Your children can't do that. A spouse can't do that. A career can't do that. Money can't do that. Only God can bear the weight of your heart. Therefore, Christian worship is about taking your heart off what you are worshiping and giving it to God. Which brings us to what does worship require? Look in verse 7 through 10 here. Verse seven, towards the end, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What does worship require? Worship requires the hard work of holding fast to God's word no matter where you find yourself today, even when everything in you doesn't want to do that. Worship requires effort, to hold fast to what God has said today. No matter what else is going on in your life. Now, why, why is that? Why does worship require that? The reason I think we find that is worship is where we get the heart surgery that we need to enter into God's rest to enter into the rest that we read of at the end of this passage. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 4, listen to how the writer describes how God's Word works on the heart. He says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, what worship requires is that you and I take very seriously our need for God's word to expose us. That has to happen if you're going to find the rest that the Scriptures hold out to us in Jesus. And without this, without this work of holding fast to God's Word, we are bound to repeat the very same error that the psalmist writes about in verses 8 through 10, where he describes this episode in the, the early phases of God's people after they have left Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. And they're in an area of the desert where there's no water. And they get angry. They cry out to Moses and argue with him and quarrel with him and begin to actually even indict God. And if you remember the passage we read earlier, it ends with testing and quarreling and indicting and asking, Is God even with us anymore? And the most amazing thing about that story is just one chapter earlier, do you know what happens in Exodus chapter 16? They're without food, and God rains down manna from heaven. The very next chapter, after God rains down manna from heaven, they've moved on and they have no water, and it's as if they've completely forgotten how God had provided for them just a short time ago. And they begin to test and quarrel. And in fact, these two names for this incident of Meribah literally means to contend with, to argue with. And Massa literally means to test. And in fact, that's how they're described when your father's put me to the test. Now, how does this hardening happen that that story illustrates for us? There, there are a lot of ways we, I, I could describe this. I just want to give you two. Because this story really is a diagnostic tool for you. What does this hardening look like? How can you begin to see it in your own life? Well, this hardening of heart looks like this. When we dismiss God as either unwilling or unable to take care of you right now today, no matter what else is going on. It is that maneuver of our hearts that begins to distrust, disbelieve, and think, he's, he's not willing, he just really isn't good, or he's just not very powerful, he's just not able to, he's not gonna take care of me. That's the first sign. But the second one is when we view God through our current circumstances with a heart of accusation and critique rather than a heart of trust. How about you? Where do you find yourself tonight? Just speaking personally, it's all too easy. In the midst of trying circumstances to not look through them back at God and think, what are you doing? Why aren't you showing up? You're not coming through on your promises. It's very difficult instead to look to God in faith and trust him with your circumstances. But those are two radically different things. And therefore... Remember when we said at the very beginning about the rhythm of worship that this psalm puts in front of us. You need worship, the rhythm of this worship, to soften you. That's why God has given you one day every week to set aside, to let him remind you that he is the great king, that he is the shepherd God, It's why we celebrate every week with songs of praise and joy at the very beginning. It's why we spend time confessing our sin. It's why we spend time reading the Scriptures, preaching the Scriptures. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. You need to hear again and again God's overtures to you of His glory, of His beauty, of His grace, of His mercy. But perhaps you're sitting here and you're listening to what this passage teaches, and you feel like your heart is hard. And maybe you're fine with that, and or maybe that bothers you. Or perhaps you find yourself in the midst of some very trying circumstances, and it feels Virtually virtually impossible to hear God's word because those things going on in your life are so loud and so exhausting and so taxing mentally and emotionally that you just can't seem to hear God's words of grace. What hope is there for you then to enjoy God's rest that's mentioned in verse 11? That we have to enter into. How does that happen? How can we, as people who are so prone to hardened hearts, to testing and quarreling with God, enter into that rest? That brings us to the what worship promises. Like I said in verse eleven, the psalmist here mentions it by way of judgment on this on God's people that they would not enter my rest. That first generation of his people that left Egypt wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died. That was their consequence for quarreling with him, testing him, hardening their hearts against him. And yet, here, this promise of rest, it's still there. And in fact, when you look at the, the book of Hebrews, you can, I don't have time to, to go in and to read it, but go read Hebrews 3 and 4 if you have time. The writer of Hebrews takes this psalm and applies it directly to the New Testament church. So therefore, the today in verse 7 isn't just back there and then. That today is for us right now. And the rest that is here mentioned is for us too. And not only that, the writer of Hebrews actually uses a a metaphor in this passage to describe the church. If you notice for a moment in verse 8, where the psalmist describes God's people as in the wilderness. Well, the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and he refers to the church as a wilderness community. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about it. The people of God who have left Egypt, they've not yet made it to the promised land, to Canaan, which in the Old Testament, the promised land, Canaan, was God's rest. To enter into the promised land was to enter into God's rest. And yet, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this, and he Puts in front of us, but there's still another rest. That was just an anticipation, a looking ahead to a greater rest. And so, what it means to be a wilderness community is that you're a people on the way, you're not home yet. You're on a journey fraught with trial, with conflict, with hurt with pain, with disappointment. We are a wilderness community. Which is incredibly important for us to remember. We're not home. Where you live is not your true home. Your true home is with Jesus. Where you live right now It's like a road trip where you stop off for the evening at a hotel. The writer of Hebrews helps us to see that we are a people who are still on the way. And worship promises a rest. It holds out to us a rest that we need. Now, where do you find this rest? How do you enter into it when you're on the way? The answer, I think, is we have to see that there's another wilderness experience that we need to look through to understand our own. If you remember in in the Gospels, early on in Jesus' ministry, after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit takes Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days. Luke tells us that He had no water. He had no food. And he was tempted by the devil. What does that mean for you? That means that Jesus has already gone through a wilderness experience, Jesus has already made the journey, Jesus has already made it home. Jesus has already been faced with trial, with struggle, with temptation, with abandonment, with suffering. And you know what? He never quarreled. He never tested and complained or disbelieved his Father's love for him, his commitment to him, his power to save and to rescue and provide. What's that mean? That means Jesus, in his temptation in the wilderness, he came to get right what you and I get wrong. Now think about this. What does it mean for you to ascribe ultimate value to Jesus? One thing it means is that you begin to ponder and meditate and think out. What does it mean that Jesus came to do for me what I cannot do for myself. That he came as my captain, as the author and perfecter of my faith, that I would make it home through the wilderness, whatever happens, whoever forsakes me, whoever I lose, whatever I lose that the gospel tells me I am safe, I am secure in Jesus. So then what does it mean for you to enter into God's rest right now? What it means is you must abandon every attempt of your own to find a counterfeit rest other than the rest that Jesus promises. And we're all prone to it. And there's a lot of good versions of it. But what the gospel tells you, there is not even vacation isn't the rest you need. A better job isn't the rest you need. A better spouse isn't the rest you need. More well-behaved children isn't the rest that you need. You need a deep soul rest. Do you notice here it says, my rest, in verse 11. That's God's rest. What does it mean for God to rest? He doesn't ever sleep. He never gets tired. What does it mean for God to rest? Well, you could look back in Genesis chapter 2 when God rested at the end of creation. What does it mean for him to rest? It means he is absolutely satisfied. He is completely content and delighted in what he has done. Now think about this for a moment. God is absolutely satisfied with Jesus. All that is required to have a relationship with God, to enter into the rest that He offers, Jesus has secured. So, how do you begin to worship as this psalm puts out in front of you? Well, it's really quite simple though it does take a fair bit of work. You need to work out who this Jesus is. What kind of God would do this, that he would send his own son to suffer and to die for people like you and me who in every way, however subtle and sophisticated, left to ourselves would reject it and blow it off. We need to work it out. We need to think about it. We need to engage with it until it begins to captivate your emotions, begins to shape your will and reshape the way you think about yourself and other people in the world in which you live. And you know what? This is not an easy thing to do. And I want to finish with this one other observation. Also, as a bit of a challenge to you as a church and for us to take on together. Did you notice in verse 1, 2 and 3, "O come, let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise to him." Verse 6, "O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel." You know, there is no such thing as Christian worship that you can do alone. You simply cannot worship God. As God intends you to worship him. And not come to worship. You can't not worship and experience God. As he wants you to experience him. If your steady diet of worship. Is a walk in the woods. If your steady diet of worship. Is listening to somebody else's sermons by yourself, of spending time on your own just reading the Bible. Those are all great things in their own right, but that's not Christian worship. This is Christian worship. And you know why it's so important? Because I need you to help me understand God. If all I had to do was think about My own life and relationship with God, what a distorted view of God I would have. Because God's at work in your life in ways very different than mine that I don't know about or don't see and I need to, and vice versa. This is nothing but what it means to be created in God's image. You see, this is why we have to do it together why we worship together every week because I need you and you need one another to help us to figure out what does worship mean? What, what does it require? And what does it promise? And in God's grace and His wisdom, He has given each of us to the other to help us to ascribe ultimate value and worth to Him in such a way that it begins to enrapture your soul in your emotions. begins to shape the choices and actions of your life and it begins to enable you to think differently, truly, about Him, about yourself, and about other people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would take this psalm and what it teaches us about worship and that you would help us to take our hearts off of those things that we do give ultimate value to and really are a counterfeit. And instead, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to find in him the rest and the hope and the joy that we most need. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.